What we're talking about with uh, Luke today is let me give a little bit of a, an introduction to, um, to Luke's gospel. I remember how we've talked about it in terms of sources and so forth, that much like Matthew, Matthew's going to copy from Mark, and he's also going to copy from Q, and then he'll have special Luke instead of special Matthew. Uh, the special Lucan material, a lot of it is some of the most familiar uh, material in the Gospels to us. Uh, the story of the birth of John the Baptist, um, that, uh, that whole story is only found in Luke. On another occasion, uh, we could compare the nativity stories in Matthew and Luke and see uh, what stories Luke has, what stories Matthew has, but alas. The, uh, the shepherds who come to visit baby Jesus, that's only found in Luke. So in Matthew, you get the Magi. In Luke, you get the shepherds. If you ever see uh, a nativity scene and you have both Magi and shepherds there at one time, they're actually crossing the streams on that one. Uh, they've, uh, they've put the two different stories together. Uh, a story that we'll talk about a little bit later today where Jesus is uh, at the temple at age 12. Uh, that is only found in Luke. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus. Um, we've, uh, I, I take my Israel groups right to the spot uh, where the, uh, Jesus would have passed through coming out of Wadi Kelt there going down to Jericho and Zacchaeus would have looked to see him. Um, that's only found in Luke. And then what I would assume would be Jesus' two most famous parables, uh, the parables of the prodigal son and of the good Samaritan. Those are uniquely Lucan parables. So that's some of uh, Matthew, or, uh, Luke's special uh, Luke. In terms of his Q material, <clears throat> Matthew takes this Q material, all these sayings from Jesus, and he groups them together into five big sermons. And there's a reason why Matthew has five big sermons, and it's because Matthew's emphasis is on Jesus as the new Moses. And so the life of Jesus, uh, it follows in the footsteps of Moses. If you, if you really follow it through, you remember uh, Moses in Egypt is born under these dangerous circumstances where the Pharaoh is trying to kill the boys. Well, it's in Matthew that Jesus is born and Pharaoh, uh, or I'm sorry, Herod, issues the edict to kill the boys in Bethlehem. Uh, both of them are um, miraculously preserved in Egypt, uh, both uh, Moses and Jesus. When they pass through the waters on the way back, it's Moses going through the, the Red Sea or the, the Sea of Reeds in, the, in Hebrew there. It's Jesus passing through the waters of baptism. Uh, they spend 40 years in the wilderness in, uh, in the, uh, the story of Moses, 40 days in the wilderness, in the story of Jesus. And then very interestingly, uh, Matthew has what's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? Whereas in Luke, it says when he found a, uh, a flat place that he delivers this sermon. So it's, it's two different places, probably the same hill, but it's a little bit like Sanford's campus. You know, it's a hill. I don't know if I'm willing to call it Mount Samford. Um, it, it feels that way if you have to park, you know, on the other side of the lakeshore or something and, you know, catch the, the tram over. It's not exactly Mount Samford there, so it, it just depends. Well, why would Matthew call it a mountain? Well, it's because he's trying to make a comparison with Moses, who gets the law on the mountain five that much. If you find five, it almost always relates to the five books of the Torah. So why would Matthew take that Q material and put it into five big sermons? It's to match the five books of the Torah. 
Luke doesn't do that. Luke actually takes it and spreads that Q material, probably closer to the original order of the Q material that he inherited. Uh, it's spread out all through his gospel. So even the Luke's sermon on the flat place um, is not exactly all of that Q material there together. It's kind of scattered out uh, throughout his gospel. So, so we've seen his special Luke. We've seen his Q. In terms of his uh, Markan material, does almost the same thing that Matthew does with his. Uh, Mar uh, Luke will improve, uh, dramatically improve on Mark's style. Luke has the most elegant Greek in the New Testament. Uh, all of those historical presents he'll fix except for one, which I know he was upset about. Um, you've got the uh, uh, those antecedents to pronouns and things like that, all of that material, Luke goes in and fixes. So that he produces really a quite beautiful gospel. And it's not just his gospel. Luke is part one of a two-part series. So the book of Acts was also written by Luke. And the dilemma that you have when you try to order the Gospels is the early church put them in the order in which they thought they were composed. And so they started with Matthew because for a long time that's what people thought was the first Gospel. In fact, people used to think that Matthew was first composed in Aramaic and then translated over into Greek. That's, I don't really know if there are any scholars that believe that now. Uh, but so today most people would say Mark first, Matthew and Luke second, John last. Well, it's, it's like if you're OCD like me, You've been tormented by some friend or relative who has sent you one of those pictures where someone has been pumping gas, and they, they, it's, it's right at, at $10, but it's at something .99 gallons. Now, I'm trying to do the math. Uh, that would be, what, one gallon today um, is what it feels like. Uh, but, you know, in times past, you could think of it. And so here you, you've got 4.99 gallons, but you've got $20 well, you, you, it really ought to be five gallons, but then it's going to be 20.01, and so it just it torments those of us who have a strong you know, sense of order about us. Well, well, what does one do with the Gospels? If, if you take Acts and put it next to Luke, well, then John is orphaned out there. If you put Luke last so that it will be next to Acts, well, then John, which was written later, comes in. So there's no good way to fix it. Uh, so what we have are the four Gospels and then the book of Acts over there. And Acts just picks up right where the book of Luke stops. And it, in fact, it even refers to the same recipient of the Gospel. And I, I've got that first paragraph for you. If you uh, will look on your handout there, Luke 1, we've read this, uh, this four-verse long sentence before. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating twists and turns right there, there are several things in here that, that I find interesting. One is that, you know, I, look, I, I, I've basically put my cards on the table with y'all over the years. I am a solar uh, scriptura person. I have committed my life to Christ. I've committed my life to the scriptures. And so that's just, that's what informs my belief in practice. Uh, if you can come up with something that you want me to believe or to do, that's, a, that's great. Show me from the scriptures where that's the case and I'll do it. And if you can't, I'm like, eh, it's, that's awesome. It's like 10 helpful hints uh, for something, but that's just who I am. So, uh, so I, I'm committed to the scriptures. When it comes to how the Gospels were put together, I find it fascinating that Luke never refers to inspiration. What he says is, I investigated. I talked to eyewitnesses. 
I wanted to put together an orderly account. And so just in the same way that we were talking about how, you know, Christ is both human and divine when we're talking about the Ebionites versus the Docetists, Scripture is the same way. And what Luke has given us here is the human side of this process of inscripturation. What he says he did, he, he does say, I, I stared at a candle and then the spirit began to move the quill in my hand. That's not the way he talks about it. He says, I investigated, I put it together in an orderly fashion and produced this. Now, from my perspective, that doesn't mean that it's not God's word. It just means that these are tracks that run parallel to one another. God is in control of this process as Luke is doing his humanly work of investigating and writing down the scriptures there. There is a provocative line at the end when it says, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Well, if we've got our little diagram where Luke is drawing from Mark, is he talking about Mark when he says, so that you might know the truth concerning the things about which, in other words, is Luke writing as a corrective to Mark's gospel, which was already out there. Now, it's not actually what I think Luke is going to be saying in this line, and I'll explain in a minute what I think he, he really is after here. But to some degree, I don't think we can avoid that conclusion, that when the later gospels write, they're, they're writing and saying, yes, but, to the earlier gospels that were out there. I mean, certainly when Matthew says, no, it's only that he didn't do, mighty works there, not that he couldn't do them. I, I think you have to accept that Matthew is to some degree correcting Mark in that case. Now, what is Luke doing though? Is, is Luke announcing up front, okay, I know you got Mark, but let me fix it. I actually think the key to Luke is in that line, most excellent Theophilus. Every time Mark uses that line, most excellent, uh, he's referring to a Roman official. And so it actually, there's a line where it says, most excellent Felix. Same thing happens in Acts 26. In each one of those cases, it's a little bit like in, uh, in our culture, if we say, your honor, you, you know, we don't just say your honor to anyone. We, we say your honor to a judge. And that's pretty much it. In fact, if you ever watch Fiddler on the Roof, doesn't it strike your ear just a little odd when Tevye calls the, the Russian official there, your honor? Because what we're expecting is a judge when you hear that. It's a certain phrase for a certain person. Every time Luke uses that phrase, he's talking to a Roman official. Imagine if Luke is writing this gospel to a Roman official and then is saying, I want you to know the truth Roman official about the things concerning which you've been informed before. It's just a fact that as Christianity spread into the Roman Empire, it stirred up trouble. It didn't necessarily mean to, but it inevitably stirred up trouble. I've got a passage here for you uh, from Acts chapter 19. This is when uh, Paul has gone to Ephesus it says, uh, also many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. So here you have some people in Ephesus who've become believers and they've been practicing these different magical rites and so forth. And so now they're burning their books. Eh, okay, so they're burning their books. That's not the worst. When the value of those books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. Well, well, see, now, now we've stopped preaching and gone to meddling <laughs> because, 
if, if those books cost 50,000 silver coins, then, well, that's 50,000 silver coins worth of books that could have been sold again to somebody. And if these people keep becoming believers, they're not going to be buying that. The market's going to dry up. Well, in fact, it is drying up. Look at verse 23. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. So this is the way Luke describes Christianity. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. This is uh, Diana, the, the goddess there. Brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. <laughs> See, of course, from Paul's perspective, he's like, you're darn right. <laughs> you know, gods aren't made by human hands. So he's drawing upon a thousand years of Jewish tradition when he says this. But if your business is using your hands to make gods, well, then suddenly you feel threatened. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. And they, they throw a riot. And so they gather together in their local Colosseum and they're saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul wants to go in and preach to them. And he has to be physically restrained by his friend. We are not going to go and commit suicide by mob in there with these, you know, Artemis worshipers here. But well, all Paul did was preach the gospel. All Paul did was just spread the message of Christianity. I mean, he never took up a sword or anything like that. And yet look at the trouble that was stirred up as a result. Christianity stirs up trouble when it spreads around. It's not that it means to necessarily, but it, it does spread trouble. And the Romans were, were not interested in trouble. Pax Romana was a little bit like, you know, my parenting philosophy, which was teamwork is everybody doing what I say. Um, you know, and the boys embraced that and it worked out great. You know, it's just the, uh, if, what Rome did not want was they didn't want where, where people were over here causing a problem. And if they, if to quote a line from a movie I saw one time, it was like, if you don't understand it, just get rid of it. That was Rome's philosophy. And so if there was a group of people that were stirring up trouble, they would go in and they would quell the trouble and they didn't really care who was at fault. They just wanted the trouble to go away. In fact, that's the way that Pilate basically works. If you think about it, you know, Pilate is saying, well, I don't really understand this guy. I don't know what's going on with this guy, but I'd rather this problem go away if I have to. And he can wash his hands all he wants to. What he's really doing is just saying, I don't want to deal with this. And he doesn't want a riot to start. In fact, that's the way Pilate started his entire governorship in Judah. First thing he did is he put up banners of the emperor in the temple. Well, for an aniconic people, what's a banner of the emperor, especially when the emperor is being worshipped as a deity? He's just put idols in the temple. And a thousand Jews marched from Jerusalem over to Caesarea where Pilate was in charge. And they said, you're going to have to take those down. And he said, kill them all. And they knelt down in the hippodrome there, and they bared their throats and said, go ahead. And Pilate backed down. And you think, well, why did he back down? Because the last thing he wanted was for the first Jewish revolt to start in his first day of business, rather than to start in the year 70 or 67 when it actually started. If he had killed those people, the entire country would have rebelled. And he had to back down because it's like, the one thing we don't want is trouble. So here you're a Roman official. And you, you're getting rumors and reports that this Christianity is stirring up trouble. And so Luke writes to say, look, we're harmless. 
We're just this, which is a shameless lie, but, but what he's saying is we're just followers of this guy Jesus. We're a sect within Judaism. We, we, we don't carry arms. We're not opposed to Rome. We're just, we're, we're harmless. We're, we're just a little small sect that you've already given protection to through Judaism. And, and so we're no threat to you. Now, almost certainly Theophilus was a Christian, but you know, you can find yourself with a foot in two camps where you can be a Theophilus, Theo, God, Phyllis, a lover of, lover of God. So he's probably a believer, but a Roman believer. And he's trying to figure out what do I do with all of this and how do I talk to my superiors about this new movement? And so Luke is writing to say, look, we are no threat to you. We're, we're just followers of this guy, Jesus, is all. If this is the case with Luke, and actually what we would call this book is an apology. That's apology, not saying you're sorry, but apology like in the, the word apologetics that you've heard before. This is a defense of early Christianity. And as such, it, it starts to kind of make sense of some of the things that Luke does. For example, Luke is the only gospel that refers to events going on in the wider Roman world. And so, for example, if you know the nativity story, you've undoubtedly heard the words, now it came to pass in the days of Caesar Augustus that a decree went forth that all the world should be taxed. This was the, the first decree that went out when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and so forth. None of the other gospels does this. He's the one who sets it in the context of what's happening in the Roman world, I think because he's writing to a Roman here. And he wants that Roman to know this is what we are. We're, we're just harmless. Now, of course, Christianity will completely take over Rome uh, within 300 years, but they'll do it largely without having to fire a shot, uh, as it were. So, so I think that's the occasion of Luke's writing and then of the book of Acts writing. Of all the gospel writers, there's the best possibility that Luke is the author of Luke for the named author being the right author. Uh, we don't really have any uh, evidence other than just church tradition for Matthew having written Matthew. So it's not really a, uh, you know, at least I don't read Matthew through the eyes of a tax collector there, God forbid. Um, uh, for Mark, we, we really don't have any indication about exactly who would have written Mark. John is almost certainly a source for John rather than the final author. It looks like it's John's disciples that take material they've taken from John and put it together. And that's why they refer to him affectionately as the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, which would be an awkward way for John to refer to himself. Uh, Jesus' favorite uh, did this. Um, but, uh, but for Luke, I think you could make a decent case. Um, for one thing, there are places in the book of Acts where it's clear that the author of the book is a companion of Paul. Because the, the language will shift from he did this to we did this. So it needs to be somebody who was one of Paul's companions, and Luke was one of his companions. It needs to be somebody who's educated. Luke is a physician. And, uh, and not just that, but there are a number of places where the Gospels will share a, uh, a medical situation. And one of them, or, or the other Gospels, will just use some ordinary term. You know, he had a boo-boo. Um, and that's the technical Greek word. Um, and then, and Luke will say, well, see, he had a, uh, see, I dare not with this group of physicians in here actually use a medical word. He had a contusion. We'll put it that way. Um, and so, Luke. Now, of course, that doesn't have anything to do with whether this is scripture or authoritative or whatever, but just as a historical puzzle, who did the writing, uh, I would say Luke probably did. All right. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, 
So it's interesting. I actually will talk about that more uh, toward the very end of what I talk about today. Uh, that one of the things historically is that Rome had given uh, the Jews in Judea some special dispensations that for most of the Roman Empire, religiously, you pretty much just had to go along. And of course, for most of the Roman Empire, it wasn't that hard to go along because I, I often toy with my students and I'll say, you know, who, who's, the, who's the chief god, you know, back in the Greco-Roman world? And one of them will say Zeus. And I'll say, no, come on, it's Jupiter. And, and I'll say, who, who was the goddess of love? And, and they'll say, oh, well, it's Venus. I'll say, no, no, obviously not, it's Aphrodite. And after I've done this three or four times, you can just see them going, I just would have sworn that I was. Well, all I'm doing is, you know, if they pick the Roman one, I'm giving them the Greek name. And if they pick the Greek name, I'm giving them the Roman name. Well, this is illustrious of something. <laughs> not illustrious, illustrative. Um, these gods are all the same. They just go by different names. And then all of a sudden to have endless war in this part of the world or else they were going to have to say, all right, you all can do things a little bit differently. You're still going to have to pay the taxes. We're still going to have the governor in there and so forth. I don't want any trouble. Don't you take up arms against us. But if you guys want to have your temple and if you want to, you know, worship your one God, then we'll go along with that. So Rome had, um, they'd given some special concessions to Judaism and, and let uh, Judaism uh, flourish there. But it was a tense relationship. And so on repeated occasions, you'll have places where the Jews will get kicked out of a city. In fact, that's the occasion of the Book of Romans, is that all of the Jews have been kicked out, and that included the Jewish Christians. And all of the Roman Christians, the, the, the Gentile Christians, had said, well, we, we just replaced them. Look, God has now chosen us. And as the Jewish Christians start to go back in there, Paul's writing the letter, and he said, y'all need to both settle down. You know, to the Gentiles, he's saying, look, this came to Jews first, not you. you. You're the wild branches grafted into this olive tree, so don't get too big for your britches. And then for the Jews, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't get accepted by God just because you bore the title Jew. You, you do this, the truly praiseworthy ones, which is what the word uh, Yehudah means, the truly praiseworthy ones are the ones who don't just uh, say the law, but also do the law too. And so you have these kind of dynamics that are in there. There's this tension even within Christianity. In fact, Acts chapter 6, uh, we don't only have to go but that far. And the Jewish widows are being taken care of and the Gentile ones are not. And so they have to sort of work through that growing pain in there and figure out how they can both get along together. Um, I would say, you know, Theologically, where I'm coming from, I, I don't think that the early Christians would have thought of themselves as replacing Judaism. I think they would have thought of themselves as part of Judaism. Eventually, for sociological reasons, that split's going to happen. A lot of it has to do with the first Jewish revolt because the early, Jewish, or early Gentile Christians had been kind of ostracized to some degree and couldn't really throw their weight in behind, you know, the regular Judaism in that revolt and so forth. And it caused a rift that never really healed. And then at that point, I think the groups start to kind of define themselves over against one another. And so it's, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of early Christian thought was saying, okay, we're against the Jews. And I, I think my Jewish friends would acknowledge that a fair amount of, uh, Jewish feeling towards Christianity is anti. <laughs> that, you know, whatever we are, we're not that. Uh, and that's not to say there's not, you know, good reason for a lot of that because uh, 
I have a, a dear friend, uh, David, who's actually coming next weekend, probably will come here uh, next weekend. And uh, I was giving him a hard time uh, because uh, there's a wonderful bookshop in Brighton, Massachusetts, uh, when we were living up in Boston, and it's called the Israel Bookshop. And uh, you, you walk through and it's, uh, you know, Buddha and the Rebbe or Krishna and the Rebbe, or I may have been some other Hindu god or whatever. And I, and I complained to David. I said, well, you know, it's, I don't really like that. I said, you know, how come there can't be one in there called Jesus and the, and the Rebbe and so forth? And David's reply was, well, they haven't been killing us for the last 2,000 years. That's a hard one to get past. Um, and so if to some degree Judaism uh, defines itself over against Christianity, it's, there's, there's some cause. Uh, in there for thinking that. So, but I'll, I'll come back to some of that uh, toward the end here. Well, I'm going to talk about two big themes when it comes to Luke, and I, I certainly won't cover both today. Uh, the theme we're going to talk about today is from Jerusalem to the world. And then uh, next week, I'm going to talk about uh, the end times, which I know is a big topic for Presbyterians. I know many of the time, y'all have had special, you know, weekly meetings. Uh, I, I can't remember, where did they put the tent for the revival when you had it out there? Was it where the labyrinth, uh, you know, is and so forth? Uh, that'd be about the right size tent, right, for, <laughs> for a Presbyterian revival. That'd be great. That hasn't happened since Jonathan Edwards. Um, and so, uh, so charts and diagrams. We're going to go through all of that. Uh, I know you'll be very interested in it, um, but uh, see, these are my people, so I can talk about them that way. Um, but um, for, so we'll talk about that next week. But for today, we're going to talk about um, the, uh, the idea in Luke of from Jerusalem to the world. Matthew is uh, the most Jewish of the Gospels. And so when Matthew talks about uh, the, the, the Gentiles and their coming to faith, it is very much understood in terms of Gentiles coming to Israel, coming to Jerusalem. He, he's following in the footsteps of the prophets when he does this. Let me read you. You don't have these on your uh, handout there because just didn't have enough space. But this is Isaiah 55. You shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that you do not know you shall uh, run to, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for, let me read that again and try it in English this time. You shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. He's talking about that, that suffering servant and how the nations will run to that servant. This is Isaiah 60. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to come from the ends of the earth and say our ancestors have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. He goes on to talk about idolatry. And so he envisions a day in which, you know, the, the idolatrous nations will come to Jerusalem and they'll say, the stuff they told us wasn't true. You know, eventually reach the nations is the nations will come to Israel. If you look at Matthew 10, um, Jesus uh, says here, or Matthew says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see how Israel-focused 
Matthew's gospel is here, that the first recipients of this gospel, it's for Israel. It's not for the Gentiles, not for the Samaritans. It's for the lost sheep of Israel. In Matthew 15, uh, Jesus answers the Syrophoenician woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel there. Now, when uh, Jesus' ministry first starts, it's Israel-focused. When it does reach out, it will reach out in terms of nations coming to Israel. Look at the, uh, the Matthew 8 passage there. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, no one, uh, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about those nations are going to come in and they will also join. In fact, we, we, we know the first example of these nations coming in. It's the Magi, right? So when Matthew tells the story of the Magi, I mean, there, there's a reason why he includes that story. It's because here this is this first example of the nations coming in to worship uh, the Messiah who is here. Matthew does eventually have a passage that talks about reaching out. It's the Great Commission is, is what we call it. Matthew 28, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Remember, I am with you to the end of the age. So Matthew does reach out. What's important, though, those are the last three verses of Matthew's gospel. In other words, we get 28 chapters and seven have Jesus reaching out to the nations almost from the start. Jesus, in fact, one of the first stories in, uh, in Luke's gospel is going to be Jesus talking about how the gospel is going to go out to the rest of the world. Now, Luke has a, a balancing act that he has to deal with here. And that is, if you too quickly go out to the rest of the world, are you saying that Israel has been left behind? And so the way that he wants to kind of balance this is, Luke will give more emphasis to the temple and Jerusalem than any other gospel. It's almost like he's setting up a, a, a high wire, and, and he wants to put on one end of that, that wire the, the foundation, okay, we're starting in Jerusalem. And then the other end will be the going to the world part. If either one of the pegs comes out, then the whole, it's not like, you know, on Looney Tunes, that the line will just slowly collapse as Bugs Bunny runs across it. It doesn't work that way. You got to have both pegs in there or the entire line will, will go. And so he's first going to put down this marker that the gospel starts in Jerusalem. The gospel starts with the temple. Luke has all of these temple stories to kind of emphasize this. I've given you a few here. Luke chapter 1, well, this is the story of the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. Remember the, the story where Zechariah, well, what's Zechariah doing? He's work, uh, working in the temple, offering the incense there in the sanctuary. That's where the angel appears and says, you know, your wife's going to have a child, and poor, poor Zechariah. Oh, yeah, prove it. You know, how, how, how shall I know that this will happen, you know, is what he says. And he could just... Imagine being the angel who's looking at him going, well, I don't know. Here's a thought. Maybe an angel sent by God appears to you in the, in the holy place in the temple and tells you, how, why don't we try that one? Would that work? And so it's like, Zechariah, if that's how we're going to do with the talking, why don't we just take a break on that for a while? And so Zechariah is unable to speak until John is actually born nine months later. So I 
I just love him. Um, yes. I would never have done that. <laughs> Oh, the, the others are cast out, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think where Jesus is, is coming down on this, he's going to do it several times, is going to be that, you know, um, there were some people who thought, man, we are right in the center of the bullseye of God's love. Um, and Jesus is going to say, if, if you reject me, then you're not there. You know, you, you have replaced the religion of the Hebrew Bible with something different. And, and so um, the kind of dividing line between who's going to be accepted and who's not is how you respond to me because I'm giving you the true picture of the Father. And so I think, you know, Jesus would look, for example, at, say, the, the Sadducees or somebody like that. And, you know, Jesus, you know, frankly, in the Gospels is just contemptuous of the Sadducees. They collaborated with Rome. That's how they got to be so wealthy. Uh, within Judaism, it's, you know, it would not be accurate to say Jews killed Jesus. It's the Sadducees. You know, who were, if you wanted to make a comparison in Christianity, they're a little bit like the Medici popes, you know, that, um, you know, it's not being anti-Catholic to say there's a stretch of popes in there that, you know, are, it's pretty rough. And uh, this is the way the Sadducees were, were as collaborators. And I think Jesus would look at that and say, who's more righteous? You bunch of Hellenistic, you know, wealthy Medici pope uh, Sadducees or these Gentiles who are, you know, like the Syrophoenician woman, or the, the in fact, the, the, uh, the, what prompts this story is when the centurion comes to Jesus and said, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll go to your house and heal him. And Jesus said, you know, I, it's not necessary for me to come to, or the centurion says, it's not necessary for you to come to my house. You're, you're a man in authority like I am. I, I say jump, they say how high, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus goes, well, I haven't found faith like this even in Israel. And so he's saying, you know, who's more righteous, this guy um, who's following me and so forth, or, you know, somebody else who's following their own brand of religion that has strayed from the Hebrew Bible. So I think that's, that's where he comes down. Yeah. He, Jesus is not nearly as universalist um, as would make us comfortable uh, sometimes. He, he, he's got sheep and goats and all these kinds of things where he's talking about, you know, this is, you know, follow me, um, you know. Um, um, yeah, I, it certainly seems to. Um, yeah, um, so you're trying to get me deep in the woods here. I'm, you know, let's talk about the rapture. All right, we're just going to skip ahead to next week. And <laughs> so, a, a another temple passage here is you remember uh, it's in Luke's gospel that Jesus is presented at the temple uh, as a baby boy. In fact, this is a passage that would just seem like it ought to have Matthew's fingerprints all over it because Matthew is so concerned with Jesus following the law, his parents following the law, and yet uh, which is the, the gospel that has the story of Jesus' uh, family doing everything according to the law? It's Luke. And why is it Luke? Because where they're bringing baby Jesus is to the temple, and that's where Simeon sees him, and it's also where Anna sees him, and so these are temple stories that are there. Uh, Luke 2, if you flip over to the back of your, um, your hand out there, I, I love this passage. I don't have time, but I, I just love it so much I can't resist it. Every year, 
His parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus, for some reason, the, the, the way they've done that just strikes me. It's like it's like a superhero name. And then Jesus is 12. He's almost a man. And so the men would go in the front to kind of protect the convoy as they're, they're walking. The women would stay in the back. Think about it from Mary and Joseph's perspective. So you're Joseph and you're up in the front and you're going, well, of course, he's back there with his mom. You're Mary and he's not there and you're going, oh, look at him. He's becoming a young man. He's up there with the men. He's up there with his dad. Well, in fact, he was with neither. Uh, he had stayed back in Jerusalem. It says um, they, uh, they went a day's journey, assuming that he was in the group of travelers. They went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Now, it's hard to work out the math. Does that mean a day out? and a day back and then three days of searching? Or does it just mean a day out and a day back and then one more day of searching and that's the three days? So it's either been three or five days here, but they find him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Now, I love this one for the sociological element of it. What was it like to be the parent of Jesus? There's a cute little cartoon where there's a, a little toddler who is standing on top of the bathwater as Mary says, I said in. <laughs> now, I, I don't mean to be profane or anything like that, but, but this next line, it says, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you for, in great anxiety. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Can one discipline the Messiah? I mean, what, what was it like to be the parent of, of Jesus here? Because that's, that line would have gotten a smack bottom in my house, you know, when I was growing up here. But I don't think you can do that to Jesus. I'm not saying he sinned, obviously. But it is a tension in that story there. It's, that's something right there, um, you know, so... And I love the way I didn't. Want, I don't, I don't uh, have this. From there, you know, he grew in wisdom and grew in favor <laughs> from that point. After that was the way that he replied to his parents. There. Well, why does Luke include this one story? We don't have any other stories of the entire early life of Jesus. Well, where does it take place? At the temple. Uh, in Luke 24, the, Matthew and Mark, in both of those gospels, the instruction to the disciples is that when Jesus dies, they are to go to Galilee. In Luke. It says, don't you remember how when he was in Galilee, he told you, stay in the city. And so they're told to stay in Jerusalem, uh, stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So what do they do? They stay there in Jerusalem and they're worshiping every day at the temple. That's where they'll be in Acts chapter uh, 1. Uh, it says, while he was staying with him, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, they're in the upper room in Jerusalem and that's when the Holy Spirit comes and Pentecost happens. In other words, there is this tremendous Jerusalem focus in Luke's gospel. You could almost think of the latter half of the book of Luke as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It takes 11 chapters for Jesus to get from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Mark does it in one because it's just not as much of a pilgrimage there. Uh, the, the order of the temptations in Matthew, it goes from the smallest to, uh, to the biggest. 
turn the stones into bread, jump off the temple so the angels catch you, I'll give you the whole world. If you look in Luke's gospel, the order has changed. Starts with the bread, then it's I'll give you the whole world, and it culminates with jump off of the temple. Luke has this consistent temple focus. What Luke is doing is he's putting down a marker. The gospel starts with Jerusalem. It starts at the temple. From that perspective then, he's able to reach out to the rest of the world. And so I've given you a few passages here. Uh, I, I gave you just a snippet of the genealogies of Jesus that we have in Matthew and, and Luke. Notice the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and he works right down to Jesus. Where does Matthew go back to when he does his genealogy of Jesus? Abraham, the first Jew. Luke doesn't do it that way. He, he goes in the other order. In other words, he starts with Jesus and works his way backwards. But he eventually, where does he finally land? The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Well, the reason is because they're making different points. Matthew is at pains to say Jesus belongs to Judaism. Luke is at pains to say Jesus belongs to the whole world. And so they are coming at this from different perspectives. And, and not just that, in terms of importance, it's the very first thing Matthew says, Abraham. When it's Luke, notice the chapter. It's chapter 3. It's of much less importance for him. He's putting it later in his gospel. A, uh, a, a second story here that will kind of emphasize this outreach to the rest of the world. We've talked about this passage before. Remember when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's in, encountered there by the people. Uh, it says uh, there's this wonderful story. It's the, it's the shortest sermon that's ever been delivered because what uh, happens in the passage is that uh, Luke is going to have Jesus go to Nazareth. And it says that he, uh, they bring to him the, the scroll. He stands up and he reads to it. You know, he pronounces the year of the Lord's favor and all of that. And after he's read this passage from Isaiah 61, he hands the scroll back. It says that he sits down because this is the way you do the sermon. You stand for the reading of scripture, you sit down for the, the actual sermon there, it's fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I've given you the way people respond. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the uh, gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? He said to them, now notice, they, they were all amazed and pleased. They all spoke well of him. Jesus' response, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you'll say, do here in your hometown the things that have been heard you did at Capernaum. Well, why, well that's got a little bit of an edge here. Why is he replying with an edge? And then he keeps going. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in, his, uh, in the prophet's hometown. Well, it's out of place in Luke's gospel because Luke has moved this story the record of doing miracles and so forth, and he's, he's stirring up trouble, and, and it makes perfect sense in their context. In Luke, he hasn't been doing the miracles yet, and he hasn't gotten any opposition yet. It feels quite out of place. Well, why is it, why is it that Luke has brought this and put it right here at the beginning? It's because of the next paragraph. He said, truly I tell you, no prophet's accepted in the prophet's hometown. The truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. That's outside of Israel. There were also many lepers in Israel. 
in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. In other words, he quotes these or, or tells these stories from Elisha and Elijah. He says there were all kinds of people that were hurting in Israel, and they didn't help any of them. Elijah helped a woman up in Lebanon, and Elisha helped a guy over in Syria. Well, why was that? Because when the people inside of Israel wouldn't accept their message, the message went to somebody else. And Luke is saying from the very start, this is the way Jesus' message is going to be. That if you won't listen to it, he'll send it to somebody else who will listen to it. And he's saying that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he's not waiting until the last three verses of the gospel to say, okay, now you can go tell the Gentiles. He's from the very start saying this... This is a message that is going to go out to the rest of the nations. He doesn't have this language of, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Luke. In fact, uh, if you look at the next passage there in Luke 9, it says that Jesus entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they didn't receive him. So here we are, he, he's, he's rejected by a group of Samaritans. Well, that couldn't happen in Matthew's gospel. The reason it couldn't happen is because Jesus wouldn't have gone to the Samaritans to begin with in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is focused just on Israel in that gospel. So Luke is going to give a different kind of presentation of Jesus. It's a presentation in which Jesus is reaching out to Gentiles much more quickly than he does in Matthew's gospel. It is no surprise that Luke's would be the gospel that has the story of the Good Samaritan. This is because Luke is much more favorable to the Gentiles than he is from the very start. Now, the dilemma that you can have is just like you can look at Matthew's gospel and say, is it so parochial that it's never going to have the gospel reach out to the Gentiles? Well, you can look at Luke and say, well, is he supersessionist? Is he saying, Israel, you had your chance, and now all of you are left behind? What's so fascinating is that if you read in the book of Acts, the circle finally comes all the way back around. Jesus in Acts will say, you will be my witnesses in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And that's the way the book of Acts works. Is first the gospel comes to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then up to Samaria, and then it reaches everywhere. And toward the end, the gospel circles back. In fact, it's fascinating that one of Paul's uh, seemingly most important goals for his ministry was to collect donations from Gentile Christians and take them back to Jerusalem. Look at the last two verses I've got on your sheet. Oh, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever you earn, uh, or whatever extra you earn. <laughs> that was a pastor's dream right there. You know, everything you earn, you know. Um, that collections uh, need not be taken when I come. And when I arrive, I will send any whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. What's the extra for? It's, it's to get a gift together to go to Jerusalem. In Romans there, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem with a ministry to the saints. Why is he doing that? Look at the underlined part. If the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material things. The Gentiles ought to give back. You know what Paul's doing. In fact, the place where he does it is Acts 21. He takes the gift back to Jerusalem in some sense. Jerusalem here as a sign to say, you Gentile Christians, you are on the hook 
to your spiritual ancestors in Judaism here. In Luke's gospel, the gospel does go out very quickly to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean that Luke is leaving behind that Jewish heritage that Christianity also shared. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, the gospel of Luke. I thank you for the words that the evangelist has put down and the way they give us a perspective on our connection with our Jewish heritage. I pray that you would draw us closer to your word and to that heritage. In Jesus' name, amen.